Good evening. Our scripture reading tonight comes from Jonah 1, 1 through 17. It can be found on page 774 in your church Bibles. My name is Jessica Newman. I'm a member here at MPC, and I serve on the Board of Women. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots. And the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us, on whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled them into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, good evening, and a warm welcome again to our church family. My name is James Forsyth. I'm the senior pastor here, and it's great to end our Sunday by being together, worshiping together, uh, remembering the greatness, the grandeur, the holiness of our God, and also remembering his tenderness, his kindness, his grace, his, his love for each one of us. And as we turn to his word now together, that's, that's what we want. We want to see him in his word and understand more of its implications for our lives. And we're going to do that in Jonah chapter 1. I invite you to turn there with me just now, the book of Jonah 
a minor prophet, which means it's hard to find. Near the end of your Bibles, here's the order. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Jonah, Chewbacca. Somewhere in there, you'll find it. Um, page 774 of your church Bible. Or look in the table of contents, no shame there. One way or another, find your way to Jonah chapter 1, because we're going to work through it together. A passage that is going to teach us about not only how we run from God, but about how God comes running after us. And a passage that's full of very practical and important teaching for, for, for our lives. So let's, let's pray uh, that the Lord would meet with us and uh, teach us in his word. Let's pray together. Father, we, there's so much life, there's so much power in your word, and we're, we're in so much need of it. So would you come, Lord, and would you teach us? Teach us about ourselves. Teach us of how we are prone to wonder, how we do run from you, but teach us also of your grace, how you pursue us. And teach us uh, how we ought to order our lives in light of this great gospel. Uh, Father, as we, as we meet together tonight, there's all sorts of things going on in our hearts and all sorts of different things. Some are encouraged, some are discouraged, some are feeling hopeful, some are feeling hopeless. Uh, some are just going to meandering along in between. And wherever we are, Lord, would you come and teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, we open up this book, you see, with the words, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. This is like the standard prophetic introduction. If you're a prophet in Old Testament times, your job is to bring God's word to God's people. So you hear from the Lord, and then your job description is to go and take what you hear to the people of God. So nothing unusual so far, but we only have to get to chapter uh, verse 2 before something unusual happens. Look there. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah and says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Now, this is surprising for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's surprising because Jonah is not being told to take God's word to God's people, the Israelites. Instead, he's being told to take God's word to, to a people that are outside of, of Israel. Now, understand, this isn't on the job description. His job description is to take God's word to God's, God's people. This is, this is kind of the, the other duties as assigned list on his job description. He's been sent outside of Israel to Nineveh. Nineveh, which we know is, is in modern-day Iraq. Now, certainly some of the other prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos, had at times delivered short messages to these other nations. But up until this point, none of these prophets had actually gone to those places. None of them had been on, on a field trip to these, these foreign lands. And so what's happening here is unusual. But even more surprising than the fact that he's been sent just outside of Israel is exactly who he's being sent to, the Ninevites. Understand, right, if, if God's going to send his prophet on some international business, like, we expect it to be to, you know, the friendly neighbors to the north, some peace-loving country, right? But Nineveh is not Canada. It is not Switzerland. In fact, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Now, in this, in this time, Assyria is not only one of Israel's enemies, but actually one of the most violent and oppressive nations on, all the, on the face of the earth. 
Here's what they were famous for. They would capture their enemies, and then they would chop both legs off and one of the arms, leaving their enemy with one arm that they could mockingly shake as they bled to death. They were famous for taking other captured soldiers and chopping off their heads and then forcing family members to carry around the head on on poles. For those that they left, you know, to, to, to stay alive, they would just subject them to like the most brutal and violent forms of slavery we've ever heard of. One expert in uh, Near Eastern archaeology says that Assyrian history is, quote, as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. In fact, so wicked are the Assyrians. Look at verse 2. See what the Lord says about them? Their evil has come up before me. You remember back in uh, Noah's days, how the evil, the wickedness of, of humanity rose up before God and he responded in judgment by sending the flood? Maybe that's what we're expecting. But instead, what's God doing? He's sending his prophet. To people who deserve judgment, he's sending a message of hope. He's sending Jonah on a mission of mercy, reminding us that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. But Jonah, he's not having it. Jonah's thinking, I'm not going to end up with one arm, with like my head on some pole, for these people like who, who aren't even Israelites, they aren't even part of the family of God. Instead, look at verse 3. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. (laughs) Verse 2, God says, hey Jonah, arise. And boy, in verse 3, does Jonah rise. But from there, notice how everything goes downhill. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the ship. He goes down into the inward part of the ship. Later we read, he goes down then to to sleep. The spiral of rebellion that Jonah has caught himself in as he tries to run from God. And to say that he's rebelling, it's it's a little bit of an understatement, right? Um, Think of the geography, right? Jonah is in Israel, and the Lord says, hey, Jonah, get up and head a couple hundred miles east over land to modern-day Iraq, What does Jonah do? He gets in a ship and heads a couple thousand miles west to modern-day Spain, right? Modern-day Spain? It's nowhere near Iraq. In fact, in this, it was as far west as the Israelites knew existed at this time. He is literally heading to the very ends of the earth in order to not do what the Lord has told him to do. Now listen, later in the book we're going to get into exactly why Jonah rebelled, but for just now, uh, let's think about when, because here's the challenge. Jonah's rebellion is certainly dramatic, and it's a helpful illustration of sin, but the challenge of the text is that Jonah's rebellion began simply when he said no to God. In other words, rebellion isn't measured in miles. It's simply saying no to God. So we may ourselves not have set sail for the ends of the earth, but I think most of us know what it's like to say no to God. To live in a way that's different to the way he has told us to live. To rebel against him, to run from his commands. We know what this is like, right? God tells us how to live for our own welfare and to bring him glory, but we just kind of don't like the sound of it. 
We think maybe that we know better, or we think that something else will make us happier, and so we turn from the Lord's path and go down our own path. We do this all the time in relationships. You know, you gather with a group of friends, and you start to speak in a way that you know is dishonoring to the Lord. Or we do this in relationships when we're sleeping with our boyfriend or our girlfriend, even though we know that the Lord has said that we shouldn't do that. Or we do this in our marriages when uh, we just sort of neglect and don't put time and energy into that relationship just because it turns out marriage is a lot of work. Sometimes it's not relationships. Sometimes it's with our money. Kind of, kind of in this, this spiral of selfishness so that we're just in like more and more and more debt. A spiral of selfishness means like we're not generous to other people, let alone to the church. Maybe it's some other thing. How, you know, with gossip, with pride, with comparison, with evangelism. Do you have a sense tonight of how you're saying no to God? Think about that with me for a second. Do you have a sense tonight of how you're running from God? Here's the problem, right? I'm really confident if I said, hey, who's going to stand up tonight and give us a testimony about how they're just so perfect? It's going to be like a really quiet room. Like none of us thinks we're perfect. And we don't like people who think they're perfect precisely because we know that nobody is. So none of us thinks we're perfect, but, but have you moved beyond like just that generic sense of I'm not perfect to know exactly how it is you are running from God? Because if you don't know, then you're just, you're just not self-aware. <laughs> and we're, we're almost in the greatest danger of all. Like we're, we're rebelling against and we don't even know how. Like never settle for like a, a vague understanding of your sin. I mean, most of all, because if you do that, you, you, you're going to settle for a very vague understanding of the gospel. <laughs> We want, we want more than that. We want accurate diagnosis so we can receive accurate cure in grace. Do you understand how you're running from God? Do you know where that is? Because here's another problem. I love verse 3, a detail I hadn't noticed until um, studying it this week. You know if you want to say no to God, you'll always find a ship. Right? Look at verse 3. Jonah went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. Isn't that convenient, right? Have you ever noticed in life how people confuse opportunity for approval? It's this kind of open door theology. We're like, well, God opened the door. So like that must be a mystical sign that that's the right thing to do. Problem is that that's just not how life works. If you want to run from God, you'll find a ship. If you want to run from God, you'll, you'll find an open door. If you want your eye to wander, you'll find a cute girl. If you want to be materialistic, you'll, you can always find a great deal. If you want to do anything that is running from God, you'll be able to find the opportunity to go and do that thing. And so we want to be careful. We want to be careful. You, you know some doors are meant to stay closed? Right? And some open doors are meant to be closed. Because to walk through them is to walk into a world of sorrows. And yet so often we just don't believe it. Ever since the garden, the temptation has come to say, hey, if you live God's way, you won't really be happy. And so often we fall into this. We think, no, if we're really going to be happy, then you know, it's, it's rebellion or it's turning from God or it's compromise. It's, it's one thing or another that, that isn't honoring to the Lord. Sin always promises to make us happy. And there's no doubt that in the moment it can feel good, but it overpromises and it underdelivers every single time. Just on a very practical level, we know this to be true. Like, we've all seen the studies, you know, the studies who aren't, aren't by Christians, aren't by believers, that say, if you cohabit and have sex before marriage, you're less likely to have a happy, healthy marriage. And we say, well, yeah, like God, that's how God designed it. 
We've all seen the studies that say, you know, generous people, like not, not even if they're Christians, but people who are generous to charities report higher happiness levels than, than those who aren't generous. We say, well, yeah, that's, that's how God's designed us. We all know that like, to compare yourself to other people and feel like smug about yourself or insecure about yourself, like, in the end, comparison is the thief of joy. Like, we, all, we, all, we, we know these things intuitively. And sometimes we just need to remember that sin doesn't make us happy. The best way to live Pray for the faith to believe. The most hedonistic thing you can do is obey God. It's to live in accordance with his really good design for you, even when that's hard or challenging to do. Yep, we're prone to wonder. We're prone to run. And so isn't it good? Isn't it the good news that when we, when we run, look at verse 4, the Lord comes after us. Look at verse 4. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, uh, so that the ship threatened to break up. Right? We're going to get into the sailors and all that's going on with them next week. For tonight, I want to focus on the Lord. And you see what the Lord is doing here? Jonah's running away from him, and so the Lord comes after him. And he comes after him in a storm. He hurls a great wind upon the sea. The term great wind in verse 4 is the same term that's used, look down in verse 2, for the, the great city. Refusing to go to the great city, Jonah's going to find himself in this great storm. Okay, three lessons from the storm. Three lessons. Bad news, good news, better news from the storm. First of all, the bad news. Um, according to the Bible, uh, rebelling against God, living the way we want to live, turning from him, running away, sin brings storms. Sin brings storms. Tim Keller comments, the dismaying news is that every act of disobedience to God has a storm attached to it. So Nineveh's evil rose up before the Lord, and now Jonah's evil rises up before the Lord. He sees it, and, and our evil rises up before the Lord as, as well. Sometimes sin brings, brings its own storm as a natural consequence. You know this idea like our decisions have consequences, we reap what we sow, uh, we call this the hangover syndrome, okay? Nobody woke up, wakes up in the morning with a hangover and says, why God? It's like, well, you know why, right? Hey, this is just the like reaping what you sow. This is just like the natural consequence. This is like sin being its own reward, right? Sin being its own consequence. But the same kind of thing happens on, on the spiritual plane and the emotional plane too. Like if you tolerate anger in your life, if you turn it over in your heart and in your mind, over time the natural consequence of that is that you become kind of ugly and bitter inside. Your soul calcifies. You become come hard. Or if you never pray, what happens over time? Well, you fall into a self-dependence that might make you prideful or might make you really, you know, stressed and tired. It's just a natural consequence of, of running from God. Sin brings storms. What's scary about this passage, though, is it isn't just that sort of natural, understandable cause and effect consequence that sin will bring into our lives. Look, sometimes the storm is sent by God. Isn't that what's happening here to Jonah? Jonah's decision to run from him didn't automatically kind of transform some weather patterns. The Lord sees Jonah running from him and sends this weather pattern upon him because of his sin. 
God is stopping Jonah in his tracks. He is putting obstacles in his path. He is frustrating his sinful desire. And friends, we just want to be rigorous with, our, with ourselves on this. We want to see where we are doing this and we want to turn from that because we, we don't want the Lord to have to stop us in our tracks. We don't want him to put obstacles in our path. We don't want him to frustrate us. Friends, listen. Grace changes everything. And you know we're going to talk about that tonight. But it's not a kind of cheap grace where we'll fool ourselves into thinking that you can just live any way you want and presume upon the grace of God. If you're, if you're running from God, if you're rebelling against him, if you're living in some sin, listen, don't presume that your life is going to go well. Because it really may not. Both because you'll experience the natural consequences of your sin, but also because God will not be mocked. And he acts to stop us in our tracks. Instead, we want to stick close to God, not make shipwreck of our very lives. Okay, three lessons from the storm. First, the bad news, sin brings storm. Uh, second, the good news, uh, the better news is yet to come, but second, the good news, it's important for us to add a layer of nuance to that first point, okay? First point that we, look, I just preach by it, I stand by it, I believe it, but now let's not contradict it, but let's add, add some nuance to it. Yes, sin brings storms, but secondly, good news, note that not all storms are the result of your sin. In other words, there's not always a, like a one-to-one correspondence between the pain and struggle and difficulty in your life and your own personal specific sins. How do we know that from this text? Well, look at the sailors. Look at the sailors. Where do they find themselves? Slap bang in the middle of a storm. What's their sin that explains this? Well, it's not their sin that explains this. It's Jonah's sin that explains this. And so there's not always that neat one-to-one correspondence. Sometimes our storms are the result of other people's sins, the results of how we've been sinned against. Let me give you an example. If you are currently or have previously suffered some kind of abuse, be it physical, emotional, sexual, you should not begin to ask, what is it that I did wrong? Your storm has been brought about by someone else's sin, by how you have been sinned against. And of this, you don't need to repent. You need healing for your wounds. You can repent of your sin, but you cannot repent of how you've been sinned against. Sometimes our storms are a result of our sin, yes, but sometimes are a result of how we've been sinned against. And to round it out, I guess we should also say that sometimes our storms um, are really just the result of, of living in a fallen, broken world. You know, we believe that the sin has infected the cosmos, like the very fabric of the world doesn't work as it ought. Things are not as they are meant to be. And so, practical example, um, when, when you get cancer, don't let your first question be, what did I do wrong? Don't let your second question be, well, what did someone else do wrong against me? That's not how it works. We live in in a broken world where things are not as they were meant to be. And so sometimes these diagnoses come. And again, you don't need to repent, but you do need hope in God. Now, listen, it's really important for us to get our arms around this teaching. The fact that suffering is, is complicated and nuanced and it's fractal. There's layers to it and there's different reasons behind it. Important both for us as we're walking through struggles that might otherwise shake our faith, but also so important for us as we seek to love each other in community. 
Because as we come alongside each other, as we, as we love one another, as we attend our community groups, as we talk after services and connect through the week, we really want to not just like know each other, but really want to love each other well. And so, you know, there are times where the storm in your friend's life has been brought about by their own sin. They're reaping the consequence of their own folly. And when that's the case, we want the courage and the gentleness to speak into their lives and call, you know, hold them accountable on that. I, I mean, I need you to call, you know, hold me accountable when I'm doing something stupid because I don't want to head off my way to Tarshish, right? We need each other to hold each other accountable. At the same time, we don't want to put that call to repentance upon friends in our community who are actually in a storm of, of a different type, of a storm where they actually need words of life, words that will bring healing, words that will bring hope. We want to understand the nuanced nature of suffering, both that we might stand firm in it ourselves and find that our faith endures ourselves, but also so that we can be an encouragement to one another on the road. So, bad news, yes. Storms, uh, sin always brings storms. Good news, not all storms are brought about by our own particular sin. Better news, God uses every storm. Uh, there are all sorts of reasons why there might be a storm in your life, and the Lord you can use them all. He uses them all. Whatever, whatever the reason for the storm, the Lord is like this great alchemist who takes this painful experience and can turn it into gold. That's true when the storms are our fault. That's what he's doing with Jonah. Jonah's in a storm of his own making, and the Lord's stopped him in his tracks to draw him back to himself. That's true also when the storms aren't our fault. That's what's happening with the sailors. They're in a storm, and the Lord is intervening in order to bring them, too, to saving faith. And it's also true for us. The Lord uses these painful experiences for our own welfare and for our own good. I was reading this week in a, in a commentary on this book of a a fairy tale, a fairy tale uh, about a wicked witch uh, who lives deep in a forbidden forest. The witch is always wicked. She always lives in a forest. That's just how these things go, right? And uh, what, she has, what she does is as travelers come by, she invites them into her home and she gives them a comfortable bed for the night. Now, this is the most comfortable bed you've ever laid down on in your life. Tempur-Pedic, you know, he raises your feet, does all this stuff, makes you coffee in the morning. However, the problem is it's filled with deep magic. And so if you are asleep in this bed when the sun rises, you're turned to stone. And she has a statuary where she keeps all the victims of this ploy. Well, the young servant girl who she's forcing to serve her in, her, in this place is powerless to stop the wicked witch, but uh, grows in pity and compassion for, for the victims who've been turned to stone. And so one day when a young man comes by, she feels that, that now, it's, now is the time to act. So before he lays down for the night, she, she comes in and she puts sticks and stones and thistles in the bed. He lies down and he tosses and he turns. He tosses to a stick, throws it out, turns to a stone, throws that out, rolls over to a thistle, has the worst night's sleep of his life. So before the sun gets up, he gets up in a rage. 
passing the young girl on the way out, he said, hey, that berates her. This is the worst night's sleep I have ever had in my life. She silently thinks to herself, those were sticks and stones of love. Jonah is a vivid illustration of Romans 8.28. Sometimes God puts sticks and stones of love in our beds that we might not be turned to stone that our hard hearts would not continue on that way, but would actually be molded and, and return to him. And the Christian, the Christian hope is that God is even now working all things together for our good. Now, I have to say, you know, that promise is true. It's only true for Christians. That, that, that promise is, is for those who, who are in Christ, who have faith in, in Jesus. If you're, if you're outside of Jesus tonight, you need to understand that Christianity has for you no eternal nor earthly hope. Christianity becomes good news, becomes the greatest news, only when we enter into a relationship with Jesus. Only when we come to him and acknowledge, yeah, we have made shit bread of our lives, and yet with you, you, with you there, is, there is forgiveness. Make that confession be a Christian, and then with the rest of us celebrate that our faith is not only of eternal hope, but also of great earthly hope. Now our Lord, now our Father is at work through all circumstances to orchestrate all of human history for our welfare and for our good. And you know, see if this sounds idealistic, you know loads of people in our church will testify that this is true. I can't tell you how often we hear the stories of, well, you know, I grew up in the church, but then I like ran away from the Lord. And then a series of events happened. Sticks, stones, and thistles everywhere. And I'm so glad because now I'm back with the Lord. Or, you know, so many people in our church will testify, yeah, I was in a storm that wasn't of my own making, a time of great pain, sorrow, and difficulty. And I'm not glad it happened, but the Lord really showed up and met me there. And and I'm forever changed by by how he dealt with me in that place. Bad news. Sin brings storms. Good news. Not all storms of our own making. Better news. God uses every single one. And I guess we shouldn't move on without talking about the best news. (laughs) The best news that the book of Jonah is really about. See, Jonah's going to teach us that God is not some professor in the sky who gives us commands and then grades us on how well we perform. And he's not even the the kind of God who will just send you into a storm of judgment. He's also the kind of God who will send his own son into the storm. He's the kind of God who is going to draw near to us to experience life with us. Ultimately, this book is going to point us toward Jesus, who, though he never committed any sin... Though he is culpable for for nothing, though he is perfect in in every way, experiences the storm of God's wrath upon the cross so that we can be forgiven for all our mess. That's that's what this book is going to be about. So that no one, not Jonah, not the sailors, not the Assyrians, is beyond the reach of God's grace. This obscure prophet, hard as it is to find in our Bibles, is going to bring good news for our souls. So two things. First, come back next week. We're going to work our way through this story, 
Uh, it's a great wild story. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And, you know, I need to be in worship every week, and I think you need to be in worship every week too. Don't settle for, like, going to church twice a month. You need more Jesus than that. Right? And, look, this isn't the only place you can have Jesus, but you will find that in this place you meet with him and are encouraged in such a way that fuels you throughout the rest of your week as well. So come back. Come on. Come on. Next week, 5.15, right? We'll do this again. Uh, let's work our way through the story of Jonah. Let's see what the Lord has for us in our lives. Second, though, for tonight, remember <clears throat> the good news of the gospel and the good news of Jonah is this. The Bible's not primarily about how we've run from God. It's about how God's come running after us. For you and I, there's, there's grace Father in heaven, I thank you for this grace. That we've sinned in many ways, that we've turned from you, we're prone to wonder, we've rebelled, we've <clears throat> done, done all sorts of stupid stuff. And hope, salvation, doesn't depend upon our ability to turn and run to you, but it depends upon the great truth of history that you have come running to us that Jesus entered the storm of human history and took your wrath upon the cross so that for us all that may be left is grace. I pray for each and every one of us that we would find more and more our central identity, our primary meaning, our self-understanding rooted and grounded in the fact that we are loved by you. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.